bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for your hand that has been upon this church and Lord for our very lives. And so I pray that as we turn to your book now, as we uh, make sense of a topic that most Americans, let alone even most church people, don't want to talk about, uh, this idea of discipline, that God, you might help us to befriend this topic today, and certainly, Lord, in a scriptural way, tie it to you, so that we might understand you and your amazing love for us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I want to begin in a way that I hardly ever, in fact, I don't think I ever have, began a message. I want to start with a commercial. So look up here on the screen. Again, again. When we're having this much fun, why quit? And New Bounty has no quit in it either. It's two times more absorbent than the leading ordinary brand. And then stays strong so you can use less. Watch how one sheet of New Bounty keeps working. While their two sheets just quit. Again. Why use more when you can use less? New Bounty, the no-quit picker-upper. <laughs> All right, let me ask, Alan, when you were growing up, would your mom have ever put up with shenanigans like that, yes or no? No way. Uh, Susan, when you were a little girl, would your mom have sat there and said, again, again, please make a mess in my kitchen, yes or no? No. I, uh, there's an article that came out in Huffington Post when this commercial aired a year ago, and it was from a young mom, and she said, I resent that you make a, a caricature of young parenting that way. This is just ridiculous. And yet I maintain that bounty is onto something, right? I'm not here today to talk about parenting. I'm not that stupid. I'm also not going to uh, try to convince you that all parents are one size fits all. But what a bounty commercial like that shows us, and here's what we need to dive into today, is that our attitudes and culture toward discipline have changed in just one or two generations. Can you own that with me? I mean, golly gee, when I was a kid and I didn't have it, I mean, I had amazing parents, but my dad and, and even my mom were, were tough. Do you guys remember those days? I remember one time, and this is a true story, where my mom was in the hospital, my dad was in charge, and he said when he got home from the office that the kitchen had to be clean every day. So the very first day, we were uh, lined up like little soldiers, and the kitchen was spotless, and my dad walked in, this is a true story, and he walked in, and he was expecting the kitchen, and he lifted up the trap, a little metal thing in the sink, and below it was two Cheerios that kind of got stuck there that didn't go down the drain. And my dad looked at us, and he said to all three of us, my brother, sister, and me, you're grounded for a week. And we screamed bloody murder, and we said, Dad, it's two Cheerios. You've got to be kidding us. And, and we called Mom in the hospital and said, look at what Dad did. And my mom gets on the phone and says, Frank, that's too harsh. That's too harsh. And he says, Carolyn, they're grounded for a week. Years later, we talked to my dad about this. It went down in the annals of Rasmussen history, and we were talking about it to my dad, saying, you know, you were just crazy. You know my dad said to us years later? He said, I knew at the time it was too harsh of a punishment. I knew it. And then he said, but I also knew that my word was law and that it would have been worse for you if I had gone back on my word and created insecurity in your souls when it came to your father, so it was better that I stood by my word, even though it was too harsh. Who thinks like that today? I mean, honestly, I sit there in McDonald's today and, and you know, having my little coffee and I'm becoming like a senior and having my coffee in and, and there and, and people watching and I watch these, these parents at the Playscape 
and, and little Johnny or Susie is acting up, and it's hilarious, because what do they say? They say, Johnny, Susie, if you do that again, we're going to leave. And what happens? Johnny or Susie does it again, and they don't leave. And I think to myself, man, do they got it easy today. I mean, these kids, my dad would have just been all over that. And even Kim and I had learned that something has changed. I'm not trying to paint everybody the same today, but generally speaking, culture watchers show that something has changed in our attitude toward discipline in the 21st century. And again, I'm not here to talk about parenting today. The reason that that's important is because I'm convinced then as a pastor that because we don't understand a lot of aspects of discipline today when it comes to God, and we start to see or read or experience His tough side, what theologians call the discipline of God for His people, we don't have even categories of understanding today to try to make sense of that. And yet that's exactly what the passage before us today as we make our way through the Gospel of John is going to talk to us about. This is a very popular passage that we're going to look at today. It's of Jesus kicking the money changers out of the temple. A lot of people know the story. It's recorded in some fashion in all four Gospel accounts, but John's account is very detailed. And it's actually subtly different from the other three, the synoptic Gospels. And yet, here's the thing. Most Christians today, I find, are hard-pressed to explain to somebody else why Jesus does what he does in this account before us and what is the theological and practical meaning of this. And that's what I want to do today. So in our time remaining today, I want to share with you both biblically and practically the what of this passage. Then I'm going to share with you the why, because it tells us right in the text here. And then we're going to wrap up in about 30 minutes or so here uh, with the responses that we can have once we understand the tough side of God. So first, the what. And here it is. And we've been saying it already so far here today. And that is that sometimes God gets tough. Now, here's what we need to grab onto, even with us. See, that's where most Christians fall short. We understand that sometimes God gets tough. I mean, someday he's going to bring his wrath and second coming and da-da-da. And, you know, he sees wacky things in culture and he responds to that. But do we realize that sometimes God gets tough? And it begins, as the scriptures say, with the household of God. So look at how this account begins, and you'll start to see what I mean. Look at verses 13 to 15. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, or doves, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." Now, here's one of the first things you need to grab onto here, because John, like, goes, bends over backwards to make this clear. And that is that whatever is about to happen between Jesus and these people is going to happen between Jesus and his people, the Jewish people. It says Jesus went up to the Passover, which is obviously the annual celebration from the Old Testament days of God's deliverance of his people from the clutches of Pharaoh as he brought them out of Egypt. And then it says that Jesus went up to the Passover in Jerusalem, which as we all know is God's city, the city of God's people. And then where in Jerusalem did they meet? They meet in the temple, which as we're going to see in a second here, is God's house. So John is setting the scene here, basically trying to tell us that whatever's going to happen 
between Jesus and these people is going to happen between Jesus and God's people. That's very important for you and I to know because it would be like Jesus coming today and saying it's going to be between me and the church, me and us. And what is it that Jesus does? He gets tough with his people. Jesus, who we know is God come in the flesh from chapter 1, walks into the temple area, uh, witnesses all that's going on with this Passover celebration. He's most likely in the outer courts, if you know the temple, maps of the temple there where everybody was. And what he initially sees completely ticks him off. People are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and special tables have been set up for people to exchange currency, very similar to how you'd experience at an airport when you're traveling abroad and you go to a currency exchange there. Same idea. And we know from our understanding of history at that time that the reason that they were doing all of this was because that people traveled a long way for the Passover. And the Passover required that they sacrifice an animal, hence ox and and doves and pigeons, and that they couldn't sacrifice an animal, they at least needed to give a donation to the temple. But because they were traveling from far lands and didn't bring their own animals, and because they had foreign currency, the Jewish temple leaders said, we need to help these people so they can worship God. And so they would sell them an ox or a sheep or a pigeon, and they would change the money into Jewish shekels so that they could give a donation to the temple. It was actually kind of an altruistic reason for all of this to occur. They wanted to honor God. They wanted to foster worship. But we do know that there was a lot of money being made on all of this. But we know that the money changers, like happens today, charged a fee for changing the money over. We know that they weren't selling oxen and sheep as a 501c3 entity, you know, kind of like making no money on it. In fact, just to give you how much an idea of how much money the temple trade brought in back then, a few decades before this occurrence here in John 2, when the Roman Crassus raided the temple, he recorded that he looted 2.5 million pounds sterling from the temple. So the temple is raking in a lot of money over this kind of of enterprise, even though it was somewhat well-motivated. And Jesus obviously freaks out at this scene. He makes a whip of cords that it says, and he drove them out of the temple and overturned their tables. I need you to picture this, because this is rare, even for Jesus. I mean, Jesus hardly ever got physical with people. Do we understand that? He didn't go around hitting people uh, when he was on this earth. Uh, artists have tried to give renditions of this over the years, so it, here would be a 19th century painting of what this artist pictured Jesus was doing. And, and you can see in the picture here, Jesus doesn't look happy. I mean, his, his, his face is obviously uh, an angry face. What I find most amazing about this is just the response of the people. It, 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 it's chaos. And, and this guy over here has, has like no idea what Jesus is doing and why. Or how about this scene? Here's another one. I like this one even better because it shows the the whip of cords and the the money-changing tables being turned over. And again, just simply notice the the chaos and the look of wonderment on on people's faces. And and that's the point here. you got to believe that everybody was taken off guard at this, wondering why Jesus was making such a big deal of this temple trade, even though... It was probably pretty well motivated and and going to such extremes. And thankfully, John goes on to tell us why Jesus makes such a big deal of this. And I want to warn you, before I even give you the why here, that it's really hard 
for a 21st century contemporary mind to understand what I'm about to share with you. We're addicted to comfort. We think that God has the same commitment to our happiness that we have. And as we've seen, we also lack some discipline, a la the bounty commercial that I showed you earlier. And so when you add all that up, the statement that I'm about to give you, that I think is proven here in John 2 as to why Jesus was so mad, is really hard for a lot of people to hear today. But I'm telling you, it's very life-giving if you can start to embrace this. And here is the why. And that is that God cares more about his holiness than he does our happiness. That's why. Again, some of us, I, I knew, I mean, in the last hour, by the way, you could hear a pin drop too, because you all are thinking about this, and you're going, hey, wait, what, what? And it's true. God does care about your happiness, don't get me wrong, mostly cares that you find your happiness in Him, but, but guess what? He doesn't care about your happiness over and against His holiness. And when the two start to butt heads, it's a no-brainer for God. He is always going to choose his holiness, and he wants you to choose his holiness. And so as a result of that, there are times he's going to get tough. Let me show you here in the text. It says, and he, verses 16 and 17, and he, Jesus, told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Now here it is. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here's what most commentators worth their weight in gold uh, tell us what is going on here, the Bible experts, and that's that what Jesus was most mad at, now don't miss this, is that this was a sin against worship that they were committing at that time. You need to understand something about the temple back then, and that's that the Old Testament made very clear that the temple was not just like a church building today where you build bricks and mortar and you all gather here to sing songs and, and hear a, a really good sermon. That's not what the purpose of the temple was back then. They did sing songs. They did teach the Word of God. But the purpose of the temple in Old Testament times was what? It was where God dwells. Jesus taught us that with the advent of Him, God, the Holy Spirit, now dwells inside the believer who believes. And that God's Spirit dwells in the congregation of people that gather for where two or three are gathered in my name. But it wasn't that way in the Old Testament. When God chose Israel to be his lighthouse to the rest of the world, to be his chosen nation, he then said, I'm going to dwell in Israel's midst, midst, initially in the tabernacle in the cloud, but then eventually when Solomon built it in the temple. And so when it says here that Jesus was zealous for the house of God, here's what you guys need to see. He means that literally. This was the house where God was found. And that house was very holy and very pure. And people knew you didn't set up shop in God's house. And you certainly didn't engage in commerce, and even the kind of commerce where you're making a lot of money, and the kind of commerce where there even might be abuse. God is holy. And the temple was a place of his holiness. And so Jesus is saying here, you guys don't get it. You're happy because you're able to buy a pigeon for worship and you think you're doing good. And you're happy because you're exchanging money and now you can give a gift to the temple which you think is really good. But you don't understand. This is my father's house and you've made it into a, a, a shop and a den of commerce and that is not what this thing is about. And because they didn't get this, because they didn't understand it, even though God's word makes it clear and all that other stuff, he had to get tough. And that's Jesus' demonstration here 
of what God looks like when he gets tough with us. That's really the why behind this, that he cares more about his holiness and his Father's holiness than he does even our perceived happiness. And here's the deal. Here's the real point of all of this. (laughs) And that is that I think God still does this today, at times, with you and me. If I'm right in my exegesis here, and I think I am, that, that this is Jesus responding to his people, the Jews, in this way, And then we fast forward to the end of New Testament times where we now, the church, are, as Galatians says, and it's complicated, but we're the Israel of God. I mean, in many ways, we don't replace Israel. Don't hear me saying that. But but, but we now are the fulfillment of much of what was going on in 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 the Old Testament. Then if God's discipline is still working at times today, then it would only make sense that he does this with his people. And I think that's true. I think there's times when you and I, let's just be honest, get into money-changing mode in our life, when we set up shop in areas that God doesn't want us to set up shop. I'm speaking figurative. And we engage in some sort of sinful and destructive activity, whether in our families, in our business, or in our own personal moral lives, and we might not even know we're doing it. feels good to us. And God, now don't miss this, who loves you and who wants to correct you will at times get tough in his posture toward you. And before I share how God does this today, because it's obvious that Jesus doesn't come out of heaven and get a a whip of cords and start whipping us again. I mean, he doesn't do that, but I think that there is a correlator here. Before I share with you how God does that today, let me make something very clear here. And that what we're talking about is that this is God's discipline based on his love for you and me. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. This is your heavenly Father. This is your brother Jesus, your Savior and your Lord, who loves you and is committed to you. And all we're positing here today is that sometimes love gets tough. Just like a good father. I can remember coming home when I was in high school, you know, and every one of us had memories of this as children. We come home and we could tell by the look of our father or mother we were in trouble. Do you guys remember that? And for me, it was not what did I do, it was always how did they know. That was what I used to always think to myself. And and the reality is, is that we don't fault our parents in hindsight for that, do we? Anyone say, well, mom and dad should never be that way. No, we understand that they're going to be that way. See, theologians make a different distinction between God's punishment and wrath and his discipline. His wrath is being stored up, held for a day in the future when God's going to put an end to all the shenanigans in this fallen world. His discipline is operative now, get this, for his people. (laughs) for you and I, but it's because we're part of his family, and he loves us. And there's times where he has to go to drastic measures to get our attention and to get us to see who he is and the mess we're making of our lives. So, with that understanding, how does God do this? Uh, uh, Let me show you here how I think God does this today. Uh, Three ways that I've noticed over the years, and this is confirmed in the scriptures, that, 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 that God Uh, disciplines us today. I call it divine distance, divine circumstances, and divine consequences. See if you can relate to any of these. Uh, First is divine distance. Uh, David teaches us this in Psalm 27, 9, and then like a half dozen other times in the Psalms. David uses this phrase. He says, why, O Lord, are you hiding your face from me? Or he says, do not hide your face from me. And theologians wrestle with, is God really hiding his face from David, or is this just David's perception? And I think it's clearly that God at times hides his face, 
He did from David because David, as we know, was a sinful mess at times. And God needed to give him a little bit of divine distance so that he'd get thirsty for God and start to ask the tough questions. What have I done? What's going on, God? How do I get closer to you again? I think sometimes God does this. Even more brutal are divine circumstances. You know what this is. This is where God allows or even causes something to come into our lives where things go south because we've been messing up a lot lately. It's not punishment. It's discipline. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 and 32, Paul says, some of you are weak and ill. And then he says, and I quote, because of the discipline of the Lord. I I know it's harsh, guys, but God loves you enough that he he allows these things at times to wake us up. And and then how about divine consequences? I I experience this one more often than I I care to admit. It's Galatians 6, 7, and 8, where uh, in, in Galatians 6, it says, whatever one sows, he will also reap see here's the tricky thing with that is that we also we all know that whatever we sow we're going to reap and so you're tempted to say well that's just written into the fabric of the universe that's not like god doing that but here's where i think god does get involved has there ever been any time where you've sowed something and you realize it was a bad sowing and you've immediately prayed to god and said oh god please help me run a fast one run interference on this one protect me from this and he does has that ever happened to you sure happens to me there's lots of times where, where God protects me from this by, by, by interfering in, in things that I've messed up with. And then there's times that he doesn't. <laughs> then there's times where God does allow the natural course of things to run, and I call those divine consequences, where he says, Jamie, I need to let you sit in this one for a little while. Again, not because I, I hate you and I'm consigning you to Dante's fourth level of the inferno. That's not what this is about. It's because I love you, and as a good father, you need to feel the weight of this as my son so that maybe you won't do it again. See, see, I think God functions this way, guys. Not all the time, thankfully, but as any good father, I think there's times where he does allow divine distance. He hides his face. I think he allows or even causes circumstances to occur that are no fun. I think he allows sin to run its course without running interference for us, all because he loves us. And as we've already established, he wants us to understand that his holiness is a heck of a lot more important than our happiness, or even our perceived happiness. And how about this one? That even if somehow we can get on board with his holiness, we'll find more happiness, (laughs) even though we tend to think otherwise. Now, before I I give you a response to what our response should be to all of this, because it's interesting, there's two responses in our story before us today. I want to make something really, really clear that if I don't say would be very dangerous because this is a dangerous teaching that we're looking at here. And here's what I want to say. And that is that just because you or someone around you might experience any one of these things, whether it be divine distance, divine circumstances, or divine consequences, just because you experience it, now don't miss this, it does not necessarily mean that God is mad at you and disciplining you. And you're saying, but Jamie, you just said that. You just said that when God is mad and disciplines us that he might engage in divine distance or divine circumstances and divine consequences and that that's the way it works. And I'm telling you, yes, but get this, it doesn't always work that way in reverse. In other words, it is true that there are times that God is going to discipline us and we'll use these three methodologies to do it, but watch this. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that when you experience those three things that he is disciplining you. 
And that's a very, very, very important distinction to know because there's too many examples in the Bible where people experience divine distance, they experience divine circumstances, and they experience divine consequences, and sometimes God was disciplining them, but sometimes, even many times, He wasn't. And we're going to talk in a second here on how we can discern the difference, but it's really important that you see this. So think of Job. (laughs) Job experienced divine distance. And he experienced terrible terrible things, circumstances in his life. Let me ask you, was God disciplining Job? No. In fact, he says, he starts the whole book out by saying he's the most righteous guy on planet Earth. So I'm telling you, if God was disciplining him, we're all goners. I mean, the reality is, is that he wasn't. Or how about Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10? He says, I got this thorn in my side, this thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he's suffering in some way. And again, if true to form for Christians today, they'd say, well, where are you sinning, Paul? You know, is there some sin in your life or whatever? And do you remember why Paul had that thorn in the flesh? It was for the opposite reason. He says it was because of my heightened spiritual experiences. These surpassingly great revelations that I was having that God decided to keep me kind of weak so my dependence would be strong on him. But it had nothing to do with discipline. Or how about in John chapter 9? We're going to get to that chapter eventually in this series. And in John chapter 9, they they have a guy born blind that the disciples and Jesus confront. And and disciples ask, they say, well, who sinned? He or his parents that he was born blind? Kind of a goofy question. And and Jesus, remember what he says? Neither. Like, no one sinned to cause this. It's a result of the fall. And so my glory can be revealed today as I heal him. Are you guys starting to see what I see here? There's too many examples in the Bible where, yes, God does discipline his children and he uses these three ways to do it, but it doesn't mean that every time these three things come into our lives that God is disciplining us. And we've got to have good theology here because we really mess up our own lives and other people's lives as a result of this. It happens to me all the time. I, I laugh at it because I, I have to have a thick skin in my in my ministry, but I can remember about a year ago, somebody from my last church in Cleveland uh, was visiting me here, just a dear, 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 dear couple, and uh, they were pretty core at my last church, and you know, when I left Cleveland, I'd been their pastor for six years, and um, it was really hard for them when I left, that they loved me, and I loved them, and we went through an incredible journey together for six years. They'd only had one pastor before me, and he was still there, and we were a great team, and so when I left, there were some people that were pretty angry about that, and rightly so, but I really felt God was calling me here, and, uh, and, and some of them just didn't talk to me. I, I'm kind of glad about that, but they just didn't talk to me and just said, you know, we're going to ignore them, but that, but that was hard for me, and, and, and it's been now, back then, a couple of years, a year ago, it was about seven years, now almost eight years, and so when I saw this couple, I said, you know, how's everybody doing at, 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 at my church there, and they said, great, and I said, yeah, I know it was hard for some of them when I left, and I'll never forget what this lady said to me about a year ago. She said right in front of the old, in the, in the auditorium there, old auditorium, the, the sanctuary remodeling right in the front there, she said, um, well, Jamie, here's what I told them at that time. I, I, I told them that you say that God is calling you to Scottsdale, and we'll see. If you succeed, then obviously it was his call, but if you fail, then you obviously didn't hear his call. That's what she said to me. <laughs> And I remember, again, I, I'm, I'm bold sometimes up here, but I'm, I'm really flowery with people. I mean, I'm not a prophet. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the dumbest theology I ever heard in a long time. And I didn't say that. I just said, I said, well, yeah, well if it makes you happy, you know, whatever. And just, you know, just... But let me ask you, is that good theology or bad theology? It's bad theology. And it goes on all the time. 
I mean, what if I did come to Scottsdale? I actually asked the elders this. I said, you know, I, I mean, this church, you know, there was in transition. I said, what if I come and things don't grow? I said, does that mean I'm out? And I'll never forget Tim Kimmel. I mean, he, he was wonderful about it. Tim was an elder at that time and on the search team, and he said, uh, you know, God might just have in plan for Scottsdale Bible Church some positive shrinkage over the next few years. And, and he didn't. I mean, we did grow, but, you know, church people make too much of a big deal of growth. And by the way, we make too much of a big deal of physical health and, and, and emotional health and circumstances that go really well. And we tend to tie all of that to God. And when those things go south, we tend to judge our own lives and others fairly harshly. The, uh, the, the, the new offices got flooded with that rainstorm two days ago. Brand new offices we have just uh, flooded. My, my office is literally ruined. Uh, it, the carpet, the drywall, I mean, I, it just, it's, it's been kind of a bummer. I came in yesterday and it was like a swamp. My shoes are all wet just from before I had to preach last night. It was interesting, that, so those of you know the design of that building, it's a load-bearing wall uh, that goes right down the center of it. So it was funny because it only leaked on one side, so all the offices on the west side of the building got ruined. The ones on the east side are fine. So it was myself and Ken, all the youth pastors, Darian, the head of our, our men's ministry, and, and uh, Ray Larson, our, our new pastor over at chapel. I mean, it's just, it's just all wet. But the other side's bone dry. And I was thinking to myself, I was laughing, I'd go to bed last night, I'd be, just be like Christians to say, well, I wonder what people on the west side are doing, you know? <laughs> I mean, what's going on with those pastors that God chose to flood their offices? And I thought it's just like, now, here's where it gets tricky. I don't know, maybe God is trying to say something to us. If I'm going to share with you in a minute here, I'm open to that. You know why? Because I know he loves me. I know he's my father. He cares for me. And he loves you. And so if he wants to flood my office to get my attention about something, I'm all ears. And I will ask him that, but I would find it a coincidence that me, Darian, Ken, all the youth pastors, and Ray all have the same sin that God's trying to get. I, I think it's probably more likely that the guy redoing our roof messed up because we asked a human being to do it, and as a result of a fallen human being do that, it just leaked in that area. And by the way, we are redoing the roof, and I think this, but we got to get good theology here. And just because we suffer doesn't mean that God is engaging in discipline with us. So, so how do we know the difference? You ever wondered that? How do you know? Here are two things that are scriptural that I've done over the years that help you distinguish between God's discipline or just a bad day. And, and it's this, that we begin with self-examination and then you ask God. Doesn't this sound so simple? Ask him what he's up to. Uh, self-examination is really important. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. The same context of the passage, it says some of you are falling asleep and ill because of your sin. Uh, it says each one should examine himself or herself. So i got to tell you guys, on a regular basis, when I'm feeling distanced from God or whatever, I will ask myself, is there any unrecognized, unconfessed, unrepented up to the best of my ability, sin in my life? And after being a Christian for 34 years, i got to tell you, it, it, it's, it's usually not overt type of sin. I usually ask myself this, is there some stubbornness of spirit, Jamie? So, some action out of the ordinary or even some subtle action that's become too ordinary that, that you can identify that just might be displeasing to God. See, I don't think we should be afraid to ask those things. Again, it's like walking in when you're a teenager and the old man looks at you with that stern look and your immediate thought is either what did I do or how did he know? And, and again, you're, you're just aware of your own behavior with your parents, it's no different with God. 
He wants us to live a life of self-examination and stop skimming across the ocean of life and pausing to ask tough questions in light of his tough love or what might be his tough love. Here, try this one for size. If you're in doubt at all, whether it, it, there's something in your life that God might be trying to get your attention on, ask your wife or ask your husband or ask your good friend who you know won't just lie to you to make you feel good. Ask somebody who, who knows you and, and, and see what they say. I think we need to do self-examination. And then this one's actually very rich. Just ask God. You're saying, well, what do you mean ask God? What if he doesn't say anything? No, here's the deal. I've looked at just about every scenario of discipline in the Bible that I can, I can think of. And whether it's David uh, in, in the Psalms or Israel completely sinning against God and having various nations come in to overtake them, or whether it's Jesus here in the temple in John chapter 2, I mean, I've looked at a lot of different scenarios. You know what's interesting about all the scenarios of, of God's discipline in the scriptures? There's never one that I can find in which they were wondering if God was disciplining them or not. Isn't that interesting? So it seems to tell me that God is not going to be the kind of God who disciplines us and then says, I'm not going to tell you. I mean, that, that's what a bad parent does. And there are parents like that, where you come in and dad or mom is mad at you and you say, dad, what's wrong? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You should know. You should know. And I sit there and go, well, that's not good parenting. God doesn't do that to you. He's not going to sit there and, and, and bring discipline into your life and just say, well, you figure it out. He wants you to know. And between self-examination and just saying, God, is there something wrong with it? Is there something going on that I'm not seeing here? I think he'll answer us. And just so you know, there's times where I do ask God, God, is there some sort of discipline, displeasure in your life, you know, in my life that, 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 that we need to talk about? When I don't get an answer, when it's quiet, I just assume that no answer is a good answer. And I know some of you might not like that, but hey, I, I've always figured no news is good news. And, and if God wants me to know... He will make that clear to me. And you see, I think that's part of Christian maturity, maturity in our lives, is that God is going to make that clear to us. So he, as we wrap this up, here's what you know. You don't need to freak out at this topic. It is hard for some of us to think that there's this side to God and Jesus, but he clearly shows it. And here's the whole point of all of this. He does this so that you might believe even more in who he is. We don't have a lot of time for this, but notice with me how this story wraps up. There's two responses. I call them door number one and door number two. After Jesus kicks them all out of the temple and displays his anger and discipline, uh, there are some that respond with questioning and doubting. Door number one is to question and doubt God. And then there's some that respond with belief and trust. You can read about it on your own later, but it's fascinating. As the story wraps up, watch this. It... Um, it says that the Jews responded by saying, essentially, who are you to do this? What authority do you do this by? What sign are you going to show us? So isn't that interesting? The, the very people Jesus was there to discipline are the very ones that look at Jesus and say, who are you to do this? We doubt that you have the authority to do this. We doubt you're really God come in the flesh. But then as you read on a couple verses later, as the story wraps up, now isn't this just glorious? It says, but the disciples did remember after he rose from the dead that he predicted he would rise from the dead and they believed the scriptures that's a direct quote they believed the scriptures and then it says and the crowds many of them believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing including the sign of kicking them out of the temple so it's interesting the ones who should have known better questioned and doubted the ones who are brand new to this whole deal believed and trusted 
in him. Now, isn't that rich? And I would submit to you, it goes on today. I would submit to you that those that have the most trouble at times with the tough side of God are the ones who've been at this for 40 or 50 years. And God gets tough with us, and I spend a lot of my pastoral counseling trying to undo this, and people say, what's God doing? Why would God do that? And they never say it this way, but you know what they're basically saying? I just don't think he's that good. I just really don't think that God knows what he's doing, that he would allow this to happen to me. And, and, and I've told you guys before, I think one of the greatest sins we can commit as mature believers in Christ is to doubt his goodness, to look God in the face and insinuate that he's not good. Can you think of a worse sin than that? I can't. And so we need to be very careful here. He disciplines us for his good because he loves us. And maybe you here today or at Cactus or the venue or Mountain Valley or Chapel, maybe you're wondering, am, am I experiencing the tough side of God right now? And if you are, please know it's designed for you to recognize some things going on in your life and then to realize how much he loves you, that he would actually intervene in your life this way. And he wants you to believe and to trust him even more. That's what discipline is designed to do. We don't need to be afraid of this topic. It comes from a God who loves us, who's even not afraid to show us his tough side to draw us closer to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing story before us that the scriptures reveal to us about the side of Jesus that many don't understand, let alone respond to. And, and yet, Lord, we know better. We know that there are times in our relationship with you where you're going to bring divine distance or divine circumstances or divine consequences into our life to do nothing but to help us understand you in a richer way, to repent of our sin, and, and Lord, to embrace your holiness even against our perceived happiness. So God, as we knit all that together today and apply it to our own personal lives, God, may we be men and women of integrity who are not afraid to choose door number two of belief and trust in response to even, at times, your toughness. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your love is rugged and, 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 and rich and gritty and that it meets us in the very fabric of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name and we all say together, amen. amen.